As you know, probably, I'm Clark Irvin. I'm a member of the Forum Committee. I'm delighted to be with you here this lovely fall morning. And I'm especially delighted to welcome you to the kickoff of the 2017-2018 Forum season. As you know, there will be fewer forums this year because of the renovations soon to be underway in the Parish House. But the few that we will have over the course of the next few months will be extraordinary and magnificent. And to show you what I mean, I'm delighted to introduce today's speaker. Our speaker is one of America's foremost political scholars, analysts, and commentators, Professor Alan Lichtman. Alan Lichtman received his PhD from Harvard in 1973, and he is currently a distinguished professor of history at American University here in Washington. He specializes in American political history, as I say, in the presidency. He has authored or co-authored nine books and hundreds of scholarly uh, and popular articles. His latest book, which he's going to talk about today, is called, provocatively, The Case for Impeachment. And as we were just discussing, so far it's an independent uh, bookseller's bestseller and also a bestseller on Amazon.com. Dr. Lichtman is also very well known for being the co-developer of the key system that has successfully predicted the outcome, believe it or not, of every presidential election in this country since 1984. In September of 2016, he defied conventional wisdom to predict the election of Donald Trump. With that, please join me in welcoming to the podium Dr. Alan Lichtman. Thank you very much. And uh, forget that stuff about getting my PhD in 1973. I was nine at the time, so I'm really not all that old. You know, I have kind of made my name in the last 30 years or so as a political forecaster, correctly forecasting the outcome of presidential elections. And I've done it lecturing all over the country and around the world, which you may think is a wonderful, prestigious, extraordinary thing. But actually, all I succeed in doing every year is making half of the country really, really mad at me. And this year, I've managed to turn the ultimate trick. I've managed to get the entire country mad at me. Because, as Clark correctly indicates, in September of last year, I was perhaps alone among forecasters in predicting a Donald Trump victory. And in fact, I doubled down on that prediction in a second Washington Post interview in October 2016, by the way, before the infamous Comey letter that supposedly elected Donald Trump and defeated Hillary Clinton. Well, as you can imagine, that made me real popular at American University not exactly a hotbed of uh, republicanism. And so, to make sure that the rest of the country would be really mad at me, I predicted that not only would Donald Trump win the election, but that he wouldn't last four years. That Donald Trump would be impeached prior to 2020. And I've got to tell you, my presidential forecasts are based on, indeed, as uh, Clark indicated, a formal mathematical model, a prediction system that was grounded in the study of every American presidential election from 1860 to 1980. But I can't claim any such pedigree 
for my second big prediction that Donald Trump was going to be impeached. In fact, I kind of threw it out in my September Washington Post interview as kind of an afterthought, something that my gut was telling me, but I couldn't justify with a formal mathematical model because there haven't been enough impeachments in American history to develop a model. And frankly, I thought nobody would notice. <laughs> but it went viral. It went crazy. Uh, my interview, uh, one of my interviews had 1.7 million views on YouTube. For a while, I was trending on, what do you call it, Facebook? With Oprah and Miley Cyrus. You know you've made it when you're being paired with Miley Cyrus, right? That's it in, in, in America. Well, apparently, one person who didn't notice was Donald Trump. Because after the election, I got this wonderful personal note from Donald Trump saying, congrats, Professor, good call, in his, you know, famous, huge, uh, uh, Sharpie uh, signature. Didn't say anything, however, about my second big prediction about impeachment. And that, of course, led me to write the book, The Case for Impeachment, which came out uh, last April. A new edition, the paperback, is about to come out, updated. But of course, you can't update enough. Every single day, something new comes out that makes obsolete what you wrote the day before. Now, as I've said, my prediction about impeachment is not based on a formal mathematical model. So what is it based upon and what is the foundation of the book? It's based upon a deep study of the history of impeachment, the process of impeachment, Donald Trump's history prior to the presidency, and then, of course, particularly with my update, the record of the past eight or nine months or so of the Donald Trump presidency. I identified in the book eight potential areas of possible impeachment. I wasn't advocating impeachment at the time. I was simply issuing the book as a warning, as a signpost to the American people of what is involved with impeachment and when and if the president might cross the line making impeachment necessary. I even had a chapter called The Way Out in which I suggested eight different ways in which Donald Trump could avoid impeachment. Of course, he totally ignored that chapter, not surprisingly, although he did do one of my eight pieces of advice, and that is fire Steve Bannon, although a lot later than I might have suggested. So, what is the basis of impeachment in the Constitution? Constitution says a president can be impeached for treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. And of course, the catch term is high crimes and misdemeanors, which the framers never defined. And if you look at the debates 
over the impeachment clause of the Constitution. It's all over the map. They discuss all kinds of different things that could constitute impeachment, even including negligence or maladministration, much less particular serious crimes. But the framers put impeachment into the Constitution not as an afterthought, but as an integral part of the Constitution, as a legal and peaceful means for dealing with a rogue president who endangers Americans' liberties and rights and national security. At the time, how did rulership change? How did you deal with a rogue ruler? There are only two ways in the 18th century, assassination or revolution. And so the framers put impeachment into the Constitution as an alternative to blood, as another means, peaceful and legal, for dealing with a rogue president. And it is particularly telling that they did not put the power of the impeachment into the courts. It's not a strictly legal process. They put the process of impeachment in political elected bodies. The U.S. House of Representatives has the sole authority for impeachment. And once a president is impeached, there's no appeal. You can't go to the courts and get it revoked. The next step is to go to another political body, and that is the United States Senate. And only the United States Senate has the authority to remove a president, and it has to be by a two-thirds vote of all the senators present after a trial presided over by the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. We've only had two trials, only had two impeachments, and that is, of course, Andrew Johnson in 1868, and then 130 years later, Bill Clinton in 1999. Third president, Richard Nixon, had articles of impeachment voted against him by the House Judiciary Committee, but Nixon resigned before the full House could vote on impeachment because he was told by the Republican leaders, you're going to be impeached and you are going to be convicted. That, that might not seem like a lot. Two presidents impeached, a third president uh, surely would have been impeached but for resignation. But that's about one out of 14 of every one of the men who has served as President of the United States. So while you might think of impeachment as this incredibly rare needle in a haystack kind of event, it isn't that rare at all. The odds are 1 in 14 that a President would be impeached. As you know, a lot of gamblers have gotten very rich betting odds longer than that. So, what are the vulnerabilities to impeachment for President Donald Trump. And by the way, I'm not advocating impeachment, but I do think it's time for an investigation of impeachment by the House Judiciary Committee. Trump administration is awash in investigations. I haven't seen anything like this since Watergate. The U.S. Senate and House Intelligence Committees, 
the Senate Judiciary Committee, the special counsel Robert Mueller. But what's missing is the one investigation that is most relevant to the American people and to the president, an investigation by the House Judiciary Committee, which is the body that has the responsibility to assess whether articles of impeachment should or should not be recommended to the full house. The country is not gonna rise and fall on whether Paul Manafort or Michael Flynn go to jail. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, but it's only the president who is the most powerful leader of the world and has the nuclear codes in his hands. And it's really only the president that matters in all of this. None of these underlings matter one bit. They're not gonna affect your lives, your security, your freedom and your liberties. Only the president affects that. So where is the president vulnerable to impeachment? And let me preface that by saying it's crystal clear that impeachment does not require a specific criminal act. Andrew Johnson was impeached for violating a civil statute, the Tenure of Office Act. Judges have been impeached under the same standard of the Constitution without committing a crime. As I quote Alexander Hamilton in my book, impeachment proceeds from the misconduct of public men or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust, and they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. So the issue is not whether the president has committed a specific crime, but whether a president has abused his powers in such fashion as to threaten the society itself. Now, where might that lie? First. Of course, there is the Russia connection. We heard repeatedly for months that the president saying, nobody that I know of had any contacts with the Russians. We heard the Attorney General of the United States, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of this country, go before the Senate of the United States and said, I had no contacts with the Russians. We heard the president's son, Donald Trump Jr. say, this is a New York Times interview, March 17th, 2017. He said, I never attended any meeting with the Russians that were set up. I never attended any meeting with the Russians in which I represented the campaign in any way, shape, or form. We now know these are all lies. And I use the word advisedly. The entire issue of the Russia connection has all the hallmarks of a Nixon-type cover-up. Conceal, lie, deflect. And then when you're caught, and you're only caught because of the press, the fake news, not because any of these Trump team members disclosed anything about these meetings. Then when you're caught, claim it was all innocuous. Let me take as my emblematic example, the June 9th, 2016 meeting between the highest officials of the Trump campaign and the Russians. This included Donald Trump Jr., president's son, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, and Paul Manafort, the campaign chair. 
This meeting was never disclosed. It only came to light because Jared Kushner had to amend his national security form three times because he admitted omitted more than 100 contacts with foreign representatives, including the Russians. This was uncovered by the New York Times, and the New York Times uncovered the email chain between Donald Trump Jr. and the person setting up the meeting with the Russians. Make no mistake about it. The email chain specifically said, we are setting up a meeting with you and the Crown Prosecutor of Russia, which is part of the government's campaign to help you get elected, and we are going to provide incriminating information on Hillary Clinton. The alarm bell should have been set off loud and clear. The next phone call should have been to the FBI. It is illegal for foreign nationals to provide anything of value to a campaign, and certainly so-called incriminating information on the opposition would be that. Instead of calling the FBI, what did Donald Trump Jr. do? He said, I love it if it is what you say, and let's set up this meeting. Moreover, in the email chain, Rob Goldstone, the guy who set up the meeting, says, I could have sent this directly to your father through Rona, but it is so sensitive, I'm sending it to you. Who is Rona? Rona is Rona Graf, the longtime Trump employee and the direct conduit to Donald Trump. As several news articles have pointed out, for insiders, if you want to get directly to Trump, you can't go to him, you go to Rona. Well, how did these Russian people know that the way to get to Trump on the inside is to go to Rona, and why were they on a first-name basis with him? I could go on. And, of course, the meeting took place, and uh, Donald Jr. says what? It was all innocuous. We didn't get any information. In fact, he lied in his first response about the meeting, saying it was, it was never about getting campaign information, it was only about adoptions. And apparently, his father, who he said knew nothing about the meeting, either dictated or at least, as the White House admitted, weighed in. And this isn't the only meeting with the Russians. You can detail meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, all, none of which were disclosed and all of which were lied about until caught. Now. Is collusion with the Russians a crime? Well, it could be the crime of treason. Critics have said it can't be treason because treason only occurs during a state of war. Well, Russia declared war on us. It wasn't a war with bullets and bombs, but it was just as deadly. It was a cyber attack on the foundations of our democracy. And there are a host of other laws that are involved as well. Second area of vulnerability is the cover-up. Some say the cover-up is worse than the crime. I fundamentally disagree with that. When you're talking about undermining our democracy, the crime is much worse than the cover-up. But clearly there has been a cover-up orchestrated from the very top of uh, the Russian connection. Even based on what is publicly known, the evidence of this cover-up is at least as strong or stronger than the evidence for 
obstruction of justice by Bill Clinton, for which almost every Republican in the House voted an article of impeachment. And this is on a vastly important matter, future of our democracy, not a private consensual affair. It begins, of course, with uh, the refusal to fire Michael Flynn even after, can you imagine this, national security advisor, access to the top secrets of the United States. The acting attorney general comes to you and says, he's been compromised by the Russians. And you let him sit. You don't fire him for 18 days until you're forced to because you're embarrassed by the press. And Michael Flynn has said, I have a story to tell. And quite obviously, it's a story Donald Trump doesn't want to hear. Then, of course, there was the collusion between the White House and the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, to derail the House investigation. So blatant that Nunes had to recuse himself. There's the firing of Comey, the lying about the reasons for the firing of Comey, the admission even to the Russians themselves that he fired Comey because of the Russia investigation, and Comey's testimony that uh, Trump asked him to go easy on Flynn and to pledge personal loyalty. Final area I want to touch on is conflicts of interest. There are two clauses of the Constitution that are relevant here. One is the foreign emoluments clause. Emoluments simply means something of value. Foreign emoluments clause says, to cut to the chase, without explicit authorization from Congress, the president can't take anything of value from a foreign government, their agents, or their entities. Doesn't require a quid pro quo, it's absolute. The domestic emoluments clause, which is less well known, says if you're the president, the only thing of value you can take from either the federal government or any state government is your salary. Can't get anything else of value. Well, there have been multiple violations of both the foreign and the domestic emoluments clause. Since he's become president, Donald Trump has received trademarks of potentially great value, trademarks, it's what he sells, this is his name. So these trademarks are very valuable from a number of foreign countries, including China and Mexico. He has all kinds of foreign deals going, many of which involve government officials from which he directly profits. And the problem is, of course, with all of these foreign deals, they enmesh the president in all kinds of decisions made by foreign governments that affect his profitability. Decisions about taxes, about regulations, about building roads and infrastructure, about his ventures. And the reason the framers put the Foreign Emoluments Clause into the Constitution was to separate out the good of the country from your private profit. And because Trump has broken all precedent and not divested, he profits from all kinds of foreign ventures enmeshed in all kinds of decisions that foreign governments make. What about domestic emoluments? Is he profiting from the federal government and state governments? You bet. Every time goes to one of his golf courses, and God knows he spent over 100 days at them, and the federal government is spending money at those golf courses. It ultimately is going into the pocket of Donald Trump. Uh, state public pension funds invest in 
Trump properties, notably the Soho Hotel and Condominium in New York, and he directly gets, according to Reuters in the last year and a half, six and a half million dollars from these pension funds for his managing and marketing of Trump's Soho Hotel, directly in violation of the domestic emoluments clause. Secret Service rented space at Trump Tower. They eventually pulled out because of a dispute over the lease. And this is exactly the kind of conflict that the domestic emoluments clause is designed to avoid. And I won't even begin to talk about, just you know, around the corner from there, all of the foreign and domestic conflicts resulting from his ownership of his DC International Hotel. And there are other issues related to the abuse of power by this president, to his putting us all in danger by backtracking on the efforts to fight climate change. It is past time. It is time for America to awaken to have an impeachment investigation. There's more than enough evidence to merit that. And by the way, an impeachment investigation does not duplicate the work of the special counsel. Special counsel is not an impeachment investigator. Special counsel investigates crimes. He's not gonna look at the foreign emoluments clause or the domestic emoluments clause unless it violates a specific law. He's not gonna look generally at abuse of power. During Watergate, we had a Senate investigation, we had a special prosecutor, and we also had an impeachment investigation, all going on at the same time. And if we had delayed the impeachment investigation to wait till the special prosecutor was finished, and they take a long time, Nixon's term might have ended, and the long nightmare of Watergate might have gone on and on and on. Well, I've gone on long enough. I'm about to finish, and you can ask me any questions. Don't ask me about Israeli politics, and don't ask me about the opera, and we will get along really, really well. So in closing, there is an old saying, supposedly Chinese, but I really think it's a curse. May you live in interesting times. Thank you so much. Why aren't there enough bright people to make this happen? It's a great question, because one of the points I make in my book is because the impeachment process is a combination of the legal, the moral, and the political. It's only going to happen if the American people demand it. And in fact, there have been a lot of bright people demonstrating and coming out against this administration. The problem is, it's like smoke through the chimney, unless it's directed against a particular end. And so if you really want to see this happen, you can't just get out in the streets, although, hey, as a child of the 60s, I strongly advocate that. You gotta sign petitions. You gotta send emails, letters to your members of Congress. You gotta visit your members of Congress. You gotta turn it into political action. Because look, to get an impeachment investigation, the Democrats can't do it alone. They're in the minority. But it only take two dozen Republicans, 10% of Republicans in the House to join to get a majority to vote for an impeachment investigation. And one of the Lichtman rules of politics is that the first priority, maybe the only priority, of incumbent office holders is survival. And if they begin to get worried,
that Donald Trump is going to drag them down, then the process could move forward. It's a great question. She asked, is there a basis for impeachment on mental unfitness? Absolutely. Look, there are no limitations as to what the grounds for impeachment are. I don't entirely agree with Gerald Ford, who way back when said impeachment is whatever the House of Representatives decides it is at a given moment. I think that's a little too loose. But certainly, if the president is performing his duties in a mentally unstable way, that could be a ground for impeachment. That's also a ground for removal under another new provision of the Constitution that was adopted in the 1960s, and that's the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which is a very complicated amendment. But among its provisions, there is a provision for the removal of a president if he is unfit to carry out his duties. And it doesn't limit it to physical unfitness, like having a heart attack or a stroke. It could be mental unfitness. But it's a very cumbersome process. It requires certification by the cabinet and the vice president and ultimately the vote of two-thirds of both houses. Not likely to happen, but uh, one of my recommendations, and one that got a lot of attention, was to have a new kind of White House physician, the White House shrink. So does my prediction rely on changing Republicans' mind? In part. Remember, it's only the House that impeaches. It's the Senate that convicts. Uh, and as I said, only would take 10% of House members. I'll get to conviction, which is much more difficult. No president has ever been convicted. Johnson and Clinton were acquitted. Johnson by one vote, Clinton by a lot. And Nixon would have been convicted had it gone to trial. So one scenario is that uh, enough Republicans get frightened that Trump is dragging them down, and 10% of them in the House switch. The other scenario, of course, is that the Democrats either take the House or come very close to taking the House in 2018. It's a long shot. It's not a likely prospect. But it's not impossible because typically the party holding the White House, in this case the Republican Party, suffers several dozen losses in the midterm elections. It's a little more difficult these days, and I'm not going to get into this, be a whole other talk which I can talk about because I've been in a lot of civil rights cases. Political gerrymandering has made it, you know, the, the fixing of districts has made it much more difficult. So those are the two scenarios in which the House could impeach. Uh, enough Republicans get frightened before 2018 or the political balance tips. Uh, you're not at all likely to get a Democratic majority in the Senate because they're defending so many more seats than the Republicans. So conviction would be very, very difficult, and I think it would really take a smoking gun. You know, Manafort or Flynn flipping and really saying, yes, the president was in bed with the Russians during this campaign, or some intercepted communications, because we know there were some warrants from the special court on Paul Manafort directly showing collusion with the Russians. Short of that, uh, to get enough Republicans in the Senate to convict would be very difficult. But again, a lot of this depends upon the American people. If you believe in this, you can't be passive. If he was impeached, would that be a possibility? Or if he's not impeached? Either way, one could make an argument. Yeah, uh, you know, I've been around a long time. 
I have tremendous faith in the American people. But we did descend into bloodshed once before, did we not, when the country was divided? And that, of course, was the Civil War, which proportionately, in terms of the population, took vastly more lives than all other American wars combined. If you projected the casualties of the Civil War to today's population, it would be many, many millions of dead. So, in fact, if the country is divided enough, it's, it's not impossible. I think it's incredibly unlikely. But what, you know, maybe this isn't impeachable, but it's part of the context of impeachment. We have a president who, unlike other presidents, and you know, I've had my differences with other presidents. I've had my political arguments, but I've never remotely suggested impeachment, even when some were calling for impeachment of George W. Bush, I was never part of that chorus. But I think there is something different. You know, no matter what the political outlook of the president, you can say every president has at least strived and tried, with varying degrees of success, to bring us together. This president is intent on doing exactly the opposite. He believes he politically benefits from dividing us from embittering us. Look at the tweets. What is the issue? 19 tweets, something like that today, on Puerto Rico, calling them they and them. You know, they're American citizens. They're not they, they're not them. He called the NFL players those people. You know, somehow he believes that he benefits from dividing us. And, and, and that really scares me. It's a great question. I have not predicted conviction because, you know, as I said, conviction is very, very difficult and it does require two-thirds of the senators. But I'm not sure if Trump was impeached, he'd go through a trial. You know, he could take the Nixon route. I think there's at least a 50-50 chance he's going to say, you know, why do I want this humiliation? Why do I want this strain? You know, if he leaves the presidency, He's not going back to a cot in Puerto Rico, is he? He's going back to the life of luxury of a billionaire. And then he, once he's not president anymore, he can you know, tweet all he wants, attack anyone, vindicate himself, doesn't actually have to go through a trial. So I think there's a, a very good chance that if he is impeached, he's gonna pull a Nixon and uh, not put himself through the humiliation of a trial. Oh, Ambassador Kislyak, who is at the center of all of this, you know. I was just astounded when Jeff Sessions says, yeah, I met with this guy Kislyak, but I was just doing that as a regular member of the Armed Services Committee, even though he met with him at the Republican Convention, paid, where he paid to go there with campaign funds, and it was a campaign event, and he met with him Again, he never met with a, you know, God knows he's been in the Senate, what, 30 some odd years or close to that? He never met with a Russian ambassador before that. No other member of the Armed Services Committee met with a Russian ambassador. You know, they, they must think, you know, we, we, we Americans are dumb, you know. How could, you know, just, just, you don't have to be an expert. Just apply plain common sense to all of this. And Kislyak is a master at being affable, at, you know, sort of being this, 
you know, round, uh, easygoing guy. He's anything but. The American intelligence believes that he is at the center of the Russian intelligence operations in the United States, both as a spy and a recruiter of spies. And when you buy the update to my book, I have a whole section on this. I, I'm not an expert in this, but I quote some experts, former CIA agents, about how the Russians operate. They don't operate like we do. They don't necessarily use people in any way identified with the intelligence community. They use ambassadors and the ambassadorial staff. And they use what's called cutouts. People like this lawyer, Veselinkaya, who met with the three campaign heads in June of 2016. She's not a Russian official. She's not part of the government, but she's a cutout. She's someone who is tied to Putin and who Putin seems pretty obviously to control. And that way, if the meeting becomes public, they can say, oh, there were no Russian officials there. But this is exactly the way the Russians operate, and Kislyak is at the center of it, and somehow he seems to have found his way into meeting with one Trump staffer at the top after another. You know, they're not meeting with the German ambassador. They're not meeting with the English with the ambassador from Great. They're not meeting with our allies. How is it that there are so many meetings with the ambassador from Russia? It's a great question. And let me preface it by saying, you should be concerned. Putin is not a benign figure. He does not have your interests in mind. He has as his objective destroying democracy around the world. And he's already won, by the way. I hate to say it. No matter what the outcome, he's already won. He's already divided us. Look at what's going on. He's already sown deep distrust in our democracy, in our elections. He's already driven a wedge between the United States and his allies. He has to be laughing all the way to his vodka and his Cuban cigars. And I think the reason why we're not so fearful of the Russians anymore is, of course, part of it is the post-Cold War syndrome, and part of it is we created a new demon. And the new demon, of course, is uh, radical Islamic terrorism. And many Americans have come to believe that the Russians are an ally, not an opponent in fighting radical Islamic terrorism, even though I hate to say it, the Russians who are armed with nuclear weapons, who can destroy the world a hundred times over, are vastly more serious adversary. And finally, there is a substantial group of people who will simply follow Trump. You know, if Trump says it's better if we get along with the Russians and, you know, Putin isn't so bad, he's a better leader or a stronger leader than Obama, most of his supporters will follow along with that. You know, the, the bond between Trump and his supporters is very strong. It's very visceral. It's not policy-based, because God knows what Trump's policies might or might not be. And it hasn't been broken by the failure to get through uh, Trump's agenda. So I think a lot of it has to do with his base, you know, the 35 to 40 percent, willing to go along with Trump. Yeah, you know, there is this myth 
that impeachment is this catastrophic political event. Not so. As I said, you know, this was very advisedly put into the Constitution by the framers, not as something extraordinary, but as part of our checks and balances. And the results of impeachment have not been catastrophic. After Andrew Johnson was impeached and convicted, the results were actually positive for the country because Johnson had been a major opponent of integrating the newly freed slaves into American life. And after being impeached, he was chastised and really abated his opposition. You know, the story of the Clinton impeachment was the presidency was going to be permanently weakened. You probably don't remember that. You weren't around, but a lot of us were. And in fact, the presidency emerged stronger than ever under Bush. Some would say even too strong. So the effects of impeachment have not been the predicted catastrophes, and in many ways uh, have been cathartic and positive events. And by the way, uh, this hasn't been discussed much, but are we absolutely certain that Pence has not been complicit, particularly in the cover-up? Certainly been plenty of lies coming from Pence, and he keeps saying, oh, I didn't know. This guy's been a politician for decades. And another Lichtman rule is, when they say, I don't know, they always know. And when they say the man at the top didn't know, the man at the top always knows. Thank you so much.